0: Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Scott Aronson. Scott's the David J. Bruton Centennial Professor of Computer Science at the University of Texas, Austin. He's also the director of their Quantum Information Center. And before Scott taught at UT, he taught electrical engineering and CS at MIT. And if you've checked out our other episodes about quantum and want to learn more, I'd recommend checking out Scott's book, which is called Quantum Computing Since Democritus. He's also been blogging for over 10 years, and you can find all those posts at scottaronson.com/blog. slash blog. All right, here we go. Today we have Scott Aronson, a UT professor CS and also a blogger at Settle Optimized. And on the top of your blog, you have something that says, if you take just one piece of information away from this blog, quantum computers would not solve hard search problems instantaneously by simply trying all the possible solutions at once,
1: why not? Good, great question you <laughs> asked. Uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah, so I've been, uh, you know, uh, researching uh, quantum computing, uh, working in this area for about twenty years. I've been blogging about it for uh, fifteen years, I guess, yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, you know the most. Single most common misconception, right, which you find repeated in almost every popular article about the subject that is written. It says, well... You know, a classical computer is made of bits, and so it can just try each possible solution one by one. But a quantum computer is made of qubits, which can be zero and one at the same time. And this means that if you have a 100 qubits, that the quantum computer can explore two to the hundredth power Mm -hmm. state simultaneously. And then it can just try all the possible answers at once. Uh, well, that is gesturing towards something in the vicinity of the truth, but it's also very seriously misleading, right? And, uh, it leads people to think that quantum computers would have capabilities that actually we don't think that they would have. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is not even controversial within this field, right. right? Like we all know this, uh, but it's very, uh, hard, uh, to get the message out. I've been trying. <laughs> uh, so he, so here's the situation, right? A, uh, uh, the central thing that quantum mechanics says about the world is that to each possible state, of a physical system, like each possible way that it could be when you measure it, mm-hmm. you have to assign a number called an amplitude. And amplitudes are related to probabilities, right? A larger amplitude means you're more likely to see that outcome, okay? But amplitudes are different from probabilities. You know, unlike a probability, an amplitude can be negative, okay? Or in fact, it can even be a complex number, mm-hmm. okay? And um, so... Uh, the, uh, uh, all the sort of magic of quantum mechanics, anything you've ever heard about the weirdness of the quantum world, <laughs> yeah, you know, bo- yeah, the spookiness, <laughs> it all boils down in the end to the way that these amplitudes work differently from probabilities, mm-hmm. right? In particular, Probabilities can only sort of add up positively, right? The more ways that something could happen, right, that just keeps increasing the probability that it happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. But amplitudes can, as we say, interfere destructively and cancel each other out. Right so like if a photon could reach a certain point for example in one way with a positive amplitude and in another way with a negative amplitude those two things can mm-hmm. cancel so that you never see the photon there at all mm-hmm. as in the famous uh, double slit experiment right if you won't take this on my authority you know you can uh, uh, take it on Richard Feynman's yeah. right that he, <laughs> he used to say that you know uh, uh, everything in quantum mechanics boils down to these minus signs yeah absolutely right? uh so, 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 a quantum computer is just a device that uh, could maintain a state that is, uh, as we say, a superposition, mm-hmm. right, with some amplitude for every possible configuration mm-hmm. of the bits. So, indeed, if you had a computer with a uh, hundred quantum bits, qubits, as we call them, that is, uh, two to the hundredth power amplitudes that are needed to maintain that computer state okay mm-hmm. and it's actually very easy to create as we say an equal superposition over all the possible states right which you could think of as every possible uh, key for a cryptographic code every yep. possible solution to your uh, optimization problem right so that's what the popular articles are trying to talk about right all you know all of all of that is true okay mm-hmm. the problem is well for a computer to be useful at some point you've got to look at the thing right at some point you got to measure and get an answer out. Okay, and the rules of quantum mechanics are very specific about how these amplitudes turn into ordinary probabilities mm-hmm. that you see something, right? And the rule is the probability of some outcome is just the squared absolute value of its amplitude.
2: Right. Mhm that's Got the it. rule
1: right uh you know it, it sounds a little technical but that's one of the most basic rules of the universe so it's probably <laughs> probably you know If you saw it on the, paper it would Yeah be good. that's right yeah. that's right so um uh but in particular one thing that means is that if i just created an equal superposition over all the possible answers to some problem and then i measure it not having done anything else then all I'm going to see will be a random answer. Right. Right. Now, you know, uh, uh, if I, all I wanted was a random answer, I could have just, you know, flipped a coin a few times, saved billions of dollars to, you know, <laughs> building this device. Right. Absolutely. So the entire hope of getting a speed advantage from a quantum computer is to exploit the way that amplitudes work differently. Mm-hmm. Right. It's to try to choreograph a pattern of interference. Where for each wrong answer to your computational problem, like some of the paths leading there have positive amplitude, some have negative amplitude, so they cancel each other out. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the right answer, you want all the contributions to it to reinforce each other. Mm -hmm. Right. The tricky part is you got to figure out how to do that, despite not knowing in advance which answer is the right one. Right. Right. In addition to the error correction. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. All of that too. Yeah. (laughs) For you know, those are all the engineering difficulties right now. I'm talking about even if you had a perfect quantum computer right. right it's still not obvious how to get a speed advantage from it right because you got to choreograph this interference pattern right it's like you know nature gives you this really bizarre hammer Mm -hmm. and it was not until the 1990s that people really started figuring out what nails you could hit with this hammer. Well this is
0: a question I had for you so quantum computers seem to be in this technology category Mm. rather than the science category Mm. so we did a podcast with Rana Adhikari from LIGO and like that is squarely put in the science category Mm. how did quantum computers end up in this, like, business use case category. <laughs>
1: That's a super interesting question, right? Because, uh, yeah, indeed, you know, often when, uh, uh, magazines and newspapers are writing about quantum computing, they put a technology reporter on yeah. it, right? Yeah. And then, you know, they want to know about, well, uh, you know how is this going to impact the finance industry in the next five years? And you know, they well, uh, let's just see if the universe. Let's prove that the universe has this capability at all. How about we do that? As first it's an step, important right? understanding because like yeah, it's yeah, not there. Right, yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think that uh, uh, I mean part of what makes it exciting is that you know this is. Fundamental science, right? I mean, I mean, in the sense, I mean, not, not, n- I mean, not in the sense that we're, you know, overthrowing any of the known laws of physics. In fact, all we're doing is, we're in some sense, we're taking completely seriously quantum mechanics as it was written down in 1926, mm-hmm. right? You know, it hasn't changed at all since that time. Yeah. You know, but what we're doing, what we're trying to do is to test it in an entirely new regime, right? Mm-hmm. Where really, you know, it has never been tested in this regime of, let's say, universal quantum computation mm-hmm. or, you know, quantum error correction, right? <laughs> the You know, the math seems very unequivocal that this right. can be done, right. right? But this is really... Building something, you know, that, that has never been built before. And so, uh, so I think, you know, and, if, and there are uh, skeptics. I talk to them a lot. They come on my blog, you know, uh, 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 often who say this will never work. This is, you know, this is so absurd that you could build this quantum computer that, you know, there has to be some new law of physics that will prevent it. But well, there or, seem to be e-
0: equal amounts of like crackpot scientists who come on your yeah. blog and figure out like the PNP problem. Oh yeah, and... no,
1: I get I get no, I I get every kind of, you know, yeah. uh of uh, of uh, original thinker on my blog. <laughs> I mean, that's but uh um that's you know one of the uh, uh uh joys and pitfalls of vlogging i guess right okay. but but uh uh you know in, in particular you know there are people you know including for you know very serious and well known computer scientists and physicists who say, well, look, you know, if not a new law of physics, like they're like, it must be that we just don't understand quantum mechanics well enough, right? That, uh, you know, the error is going to, you know, inherently kill you. Yeah. You will not be able to scale this, you know, and, you know, maybe you can build a small quantum computer, but, you know, nature will prevent you from scaling it up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and, uh, you know, in, in the 90s, that actually seemed like a pretty plausible view, you know, in, in to, to, even to, to, uh, 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 many of the experts in this field, right? What what changed everything for for most of us in the 90s was the discovery of quantum error correction, right? And quantum fault tolerance. The uh, the upshot of which was, well, if you want to build a scalable quantum computer, you don't need to get perfect qubits right. that are perfectly isolated from their environment. Which of course would be a physical absurdity, mm-hmm. right you merely need to get them ridiculously well selected <laughs> from their environment and you know way better than than you know we can do but uh, you know but it but it but it, it, if in in the minds of most experts, it reduced it to merely a staggeringly hard engineering problem right <laughs> now you know what i mean what what I like to say is that you know it, i mean i mean if it turned out that there's some deep reason why this could never be done, and if the attempt to build you know, quantum computers were to lead instead to the discovery of mm-hmm. that, you know, new impossibility principle, well, then that's awesome, yeah. right? I mean, that's like Nobel Prizes, you know, for, for you know, oh, yeah. for whoever discovers it. And that's, you know, I mean, I mean, compared to that, you know, the idea that you can build a quantum computer is like the more boring possibility. <laughs> that's the more conservative option, right? But, I, but, you know, we're, as I said, we're testing quantum mechanics in this new regime and we want to know the truth whatever mm-hmm. it is right so i think that there is fundamental science here uh and and to me you know that and that that's really why i got into this right i like to say you know for me the number one application of a quantum computer is not breaking cryptographic codes it's not optimization problems it's not simulating quantum physics it's just proving the skeptics wrong (laughs) just you know what happened
0: in your childhood (laughs) (laughs) a lot happened but you know we don't have to go into that
1: right? right but i mean but um um uh, no, I mean, I mean, it, you know, it is, it is sort of seeing whether nature actually has this computational ability right. to put it beneath the surface, you know, but now of course, what made a lot of the world interested in it is that, you know, it actually could have some applications, right? Maybe the most important application that we know about, it's just giving us this new way to simulate nature, simulate mm-hmm. physics and chemistry mm-hmm. and maybe discover new drugs, discover new materials, Right. Uh, You know, I mean, that that, that's the application that Richard Feynman and the others had in mind when they first proposed the idea of quantum computing in the 1980s. But before we started recording,
0: you were talking about what you've been working on for the past year, which is potentially relevant because, you know, many of these drug finding applications might need, um, say, a million qubits. Right? We
1: might already be able to start getting some of these with some hundreds of qubits. Okay, it's not you know people are going to try. You know? but, right, but we're not so, even yeah. at fifty yet, right? Oh uh, That's we're, right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Not 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 fifty that we have uh, good enough control over. Certainly. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah. what
0: was the application that you were working on? Oh, okay.
1: So, so I have a uh, n- new idea that I've been working on for the past four months or so. And there's been uh, independent work by by others uh, pursuing uh, related ideas. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, this, um, uh, uh, as far as I can see, may be the first application of quantum <laughs> computing that people could actually be able to realize with, like, near-term devices with 50 or 60 or 70 qubits. And uh, this application is to generate cryptographically secure random bits, OK, uh, so, for example, uh, if, uh, you know, you have these uh, proof of stake cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. right, you need a huge public source of random bits to sort of run this lottery to decide who is allowed to add a new block to the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, for all sorts of other cryptographic applications, you need, you know, a... Uh, uh, public random bits, right? Of course, uh, you know, decide which precincts to audit in an election, for example, right? Uh, uh, you know, of course, for cryptography, you also need secret random bits. Mm-hmm. Now, for secret random bits, you, you would need to own the quantum computer yourself. Yep. You wouldn't want to download them over the internet, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, so, so so now, you know, there are many, uh, you know, websites uh, already that will give you public randomness. There's one called random.org, where you can just get uh, Never been ra- there. Yeah. Ra- ra- random bits to order. yeah well, it's uh... allegedly random. Yeah, right. Oh, yes, yes, allegedly random. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, right uh, uh, NIST uh, runs something called the randomness beacon where every minute they release 512 new random bits to the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Which are partly, you know, generated using quantum mechanical processes, right? So now, you know, you could say, if you believe quantum mechanics, right, then, you know, which you should, then uh, <laughs> it's very easy to get random bits, right? Randomness is kind of baked into quantum mechanics, you know, famously. Yeah. Right? Uh, you could just keep, uh, you know, measuring uh, uh, some photons, you know, measure the polarization, the outcomes will be random, right? Right. Or just uh, get some radioactive material from uh, Kim Jong or whatever. Right. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, put a Geiger counter. Right. Right. The decays will be random. Uh, But uh, uh, so so but 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 if, if you were to get these random bits from the Internet, right, then the question is, how do you know? Yeah, uh, how they were generated. Yeah. How do you know that the hardware wasn't backdoored by someone? Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, you know, NIST did have a standard for pseudo random bits, which we learned uh, a few years ago uh, because of uh, uh, the Snowden uh, documents was uh, backdoored. By, uh, most likely by the nsa mm-hmm. right so uh so 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 there so there is a big issue of you know how can you trust randomness right yeah. how can you prove to to someone that 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 bits were actually generated randomly? It seems almost like a philosophical impossibility <laughs> right so how uh, do, how does yours so, work on yeah okay so 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 there you know there are ways to do this with quantum mechanics right and uh, you know over the past ten years people uh discovered that one way to do it is using the bell inequality which means if you had like two uh, uh entangled particles that were far away and you measure them and you see that they have a certain type of correlation that you know could not have been produced classically, right? <laughs> this is kind of the famous Bell inequality. It's the thing that disproves Einstein that you know that there's no sort of secret local hidden variables that control what's going gotcha. on, right? That sort of entang- quantum entanglement is a is a real thing in the in the you know in the universe. Uh, but uh, you know, pe- for for many decades, people said, well, you know, this you know is uh, conceptually you know a breakthrough that Bell made. Of course, it's completely useless right (laughs) of course you know you don't actually need to create these correlations between far away particles right but you know what people realized a decade ago is actually the fact that you've created those correlation also means that there has to be some randomness in the bits that are produced Mm. because the only way to create those correlations without using true randomness would be using communication. Mm. But if, if we put the things far enough away that a signal could not have gotten from one to the other, even traveling at the speed of light, then, you know, we can have some kind of assurance that, yeah, there is randomness there. Gotcha. Okay. But now, you know, the, the one thing is you got to believe that these devices were really separated far enough, right? Which again, if it's over the internet, you know, how would you know? So so the the new realization is that you can get a uh, guaranteed randomness with a single device uh you know at least under some cryptographic assumptions okay as long as that single device is able to do quantum computations <laughs> okay. that are sort of hard to simulate with a classical computer so basically what you would do Imagine that Google, let's say, has some 70-qubit quantum computer, as indeed they are working to build right now. I just visited their lab a month ago. You know, they're, they're working on it. <laughs> I don't know when it's going <laughs> to be ready. But uh, uh, then you could, uh, 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 you with your classical computer, right, could submit challenges to the uh, quantum computer that basically say just run this quantum circuit which is, you know, pretty random looking, pretty, you know, messy, arbitrary quantum circuit. But just run this quantum circuit and then, you know, it will lead to some probability distribution over output strings. Okay. In this case, strings of 70 bits, right? Okay. And so then just give me a sample from this distribution. Okay. And I'll just keep sending it challenges of that kind, one after another, Mm -hmm. and each time demand that it send me back the sample from this distribution in a very short time. Like, let's say, you know, half a second or so. Okay. And then uh, I take these samples. And now, you know, if Google did the right thing, then these samples have lots of randomness in them, right? Right. But But the more interesting part is that under a cryptographic assumption, you know, if I can check that these samples were actually correlated with the distributions that they're supposed to be. So like, in other
0: words, like one shows up 10% of the time.
1: Well, yeah, like, like, like they're you know, so all the outcomes are pretty unlikely, right? Because, you know, they're all like on the order of 2 to the minus 70 okay. probability of occurring, but not exactly, right? Some of them are like twice 2 to the minus 70. Okay. Some are half 2 to the minus 70, right? And so I can check that the heavier outcomes are more likely to occur. Right? I can do some statistical test mm-hmm. to sort of check whether Google is plausibly sampling from this distribution. Mm-hmm. Right, and then what we can do is we can mathematically prove that you know if you'll assume that some problem is hard for a quantum computer that looks like it should be hard, <laughs> then uh, it would follow that the even with a quantum computer, the only way that Google could be quickly generating samples mm-hmm. that pass this test. Is to generate them truly randomly, hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. no secretly deterministic way to do it, you know, without them spending a huge amount of computational power more than we believe that they have.
0: And so when you were testing this out, or, or did you test oh, it no, out well, with like ha, well, tons of compute?
1: It, it has not been tested out with a uh, real quantum computers yet. I mean, you know, it's, uh, 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 uh so, so, uh, the, uh, apparatus that I use is, uh, Pen, paper, and uh, I did. I did use a uh, 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 maple a little bit to do some numerical optimizations. <laughs> <Okay>.
2: <laughs> so yeah, not the sexiest thing. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a theoretical computer scientist. Yeah, okay. okay. But uh, but 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 Google is hoping to move forward and. Uh, test this out and, mm. and, 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 and actually uh, demonstrate it, you know, once once they have the, the, the uh, device, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it, of course, it could also be simulated with a classical computer, right. you know, one one could code something up. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, what, one thing that, that's exciting about this is that it looks like as, pretty much as soon as you have a 60 or 70 qubit quantum computer, that can sample any distributions that are hard to sample with a classical computer, yeah. you can pretty much get this application. Wow. Right. Okay, so cool. it's, it's, uh, it's sort of designed for near-term quantum computers. And in fact, even if you had many more qubits, we couldn't really make use of them for this application, <laughs> because the verification, if I have n qubits, is going to take 2 to the n time with my classical computer which means that, you know, I like w- w- with a thousand qubits, it might be working fine. And yet we could never verify it, Okay,
0: <laughs> man. Um, yeah. did, what other, uh, what other projects did you clear from the cache on your sabbatical? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, uh, not many, uh, for, I know I came, so, so I was on sabbatical in Tel Aviv for a year. I came with a long list of old papers that, uh, needed to be written up and, uh, I wrote up almost none of them uh, 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 and instead I just started new projects uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> and uh put the old ones even further uh, on, on, onto the back burner but uh, you know which which is often the way it goes unfortunately yeah. but uh but uh, but actually uh uh, I did uh, uh, write a paper this year about uh, uh, a new procedure for measuring quantum states, mm-hmm. which uh, is called uh, I call shadow tomography. Okay. I had, I had a more boring name for it, and then a physicist. I friend. appreciate it. Yeah. 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 You got yeah, punched came, up. Yeah. Came, yeah. it came <laughs> up. Physicists are much better than computer scientists at naming things. They uh, uh, so 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 it's called shadow tomography, and what it is, you know, so so measurement in quantum mechanics is an inherently destructive process Mm -hmm. right it you know famously it collapses the wave function it collapses your state and you only get one chance right Uh, so so the problem that shadow tomography is trying to solve is let's say you know i have a small number of copies of a quantum state okay but i want to know the behavior of that quantum state on a large number of measurements so, like, a, a much, much larger number of different measurements, uh, than, than the number of copies that I have. Maybe even an, an exponentially greater number, right? Let's say, for simplicity, that each measurement has just two possible outcomes. Okay. Yes or no, okay. right? And I want to, but I want to know for each measurement, what is approximately the probability that it would return yes applied to the state, right? So, of course, if I have enough copies, I could just measure each copy, you know, with a different measurement but but i don't have enough copies okay. right uh you know and and again if i have enough copies then you know i could just fully learn my state right measure each copy and then eventually uh, by collecting enough statistics i could write down you know in my classical computer a full description of the quantum state mm-hmm. right but i don't have enough copies for that either Okay.
0: Where so, are these assumptions coming from that uh, you don't have enough copies?
1: Oh, well, I, I I'm just uh uh I'm, I'm I'm telling you that because this 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 makes the question interesting. All right. Fair right? Enough. I mean, you know, I mean I mean if if we do have enough copies, then we do one of those simpler things. Right? Right? But I'm 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 asking what happens if we don't. If we don't. All right. right? So, you know, you have uh you know, maybe it's very expensive with you know, your hardware to uh create new copies of the state, right? So, uh, uh, so what shadow demography is, is it's a way to sort of take these states and manipulate them very, very carefully so that, you know, you can keep reusing them over and over. And learn without the, destroying them. Without destroying them, right? Damaging them only slightly each time, right? And learn the answers to each of these yes or no questions, which, again, there could be exponentially more of than there are copies of the state.
0: How does the partial
1: destruction work well okay so uh it has to do with uh, so it's the way that measurement works in quantum mechanics right is that uh uh if you measure your state in the wrong basis like you know then the state is destroyed so for example uh if I have a uh state that is um uh you know if, if i, if, I if, if if i if I have an electron that's very spread out in position. And I ask it what's its position, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, I now force it to make up its mind, yep. right? It's localized now to one place, and then that destroys all the other information that was in that superposition over positions. On the other hand, if I ask that electron for its momentum, well, then its momentum might have been much more determinate, right? And, and you know, if I ask a, if I ask a question we're given knowledge of the state Mm -hmm. and someone could have almost perfectly predicted the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Then the state only needs to be damaged slightly by the measurement. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. I mean, we know that not all measurements are destructive, you know, for example, you know, if I read a book, you know, and I, uh, I see what words are written in it. My friend can read the book too. Right. So that's a non-destructive measurement. Mm -hmm. Right. But even in the quantum realm, like if I, if I'm careful to measure a state, like in a basis where it's already been localized, right, then that's not going to damage it by very much, right? So, you know, now the challenge, of course, is now I have these copies and I say, I don't know in which basis, you know, they are or aren't localized, right? But uh, I can, you know, do something, you know, and and this measurement procedure that I designed takes a very long time to carry out. So I'm not promising you that it's fast, right? But it makes very, very careful reuse of these same states over and over again. Uh, so you know, so this had various implications. It solved various theoretical questions that I cared about. And by the way, I had conjectured that this was not possible, right? And so you know, the the this this is the way that research often happens for me. I tried to rule it out. I was unable to rule it out. Right. And then eventually, I figured out why. Right. So uh, was
0: it just like brute force, pen and paper, or did you have I a mean, conversation that sparked it? What uh, What happened? Well,
1: this. I mean, I mean, I had. Uh, taught a mini course in Barbados a few years ago where I, you know, I, I raised this as a question. Yeah. yeah, I don't see how to do this. Maybe it's not possible. You know, and then, you know, and then I just, you know, thought about it more. Right. And of course, I was building on earlier work that I and others had done. And, yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, so, so it's like not, you know, you, you never start completely from scratch. Yeah. Right? You kind of know the tools that were used to solve uh, related problems but anyway but then you know uh, 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 this year uh uh you know we've we've carried it further uh so i have uh uh, uh joint work with uh, guy rothblum from the uh Weizmann institute uh uh And so, you know, I get what happened was I gave a talk about this work and uh, he said, you know, this idea of measuring a quantum state very gently and not (laughs) damaging it. This sounds a lot like what I work on. Right. You know, he's a guy is a classical computer scientist who works in a field called differential privacy. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, some people may have heard of this. This is actually used, I think, and some I don't know if Facebook uses it, but some some uh, 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 websites use this. It's a way that. You can do data mining, right, for like on like a database of like a whole bunch of users' sensitive data. Huh. You know, it could be their medical records, could be, you know, all their, their personal data. But you can do it in a way that mathematically guarantees, in some sense, that you're not going to be revealing too much information about any individual user. Right, in the sense that if any individual user were to drop out of yep. the database or change their data, then that would have only a very small probabilistic effect on the outputs of this algorithm. Right, right? and you know the way that you achieve differential privacy tends to you know is often things like I I may ask like how many of these users have you know colon cancer or something, but then I'll add some random noise to the result. Uh, okay. Right? And so then, you know, the adding the random noise, the data is still perfectly good for med- doing medical statistics. But now it's like, even if I knew everyone else's data, I still can't determine whether a particular person has colon cancer or right. not, right? Huh. So, uh, so, so he said, you know, you know, and actually you do the same kinds of things to get gentle measurements of quantum states. So Guy said, there, you know, there seems to be a connection here. And I said, come on. It's like you can, you know, like relate anything to anything else, right? It's, you know, yeah. <laughs> probably probably just an analogy. But then, you know, we, you know, we sat down and in fact there is a connection. There's a, huh. m- you know, precise mathematical connection between these two problems. You can prove it. You know, it goes in both directions. And then we were actually able to use it to, you know, take work that's been done in differential privacy by, by people who don't know anything about quantum mechanics, yep. right? Just purely classical CS and use it to get better procedures for shadow tomography.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. So that, is that, is that online? Uh, on the not archive? yet. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> it's another, it's another it's, thing on my like stack to write up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll, I'll try, you know, I, we, we will try to write it up this summer. All right, cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, so moving to uh, one of the more poorly named CS problems that we <laughs> talked about in our email, uh, the P versus NP problem. Yes. I heard you describe this, because it it can sound really complicated, uh. But I heard you describe it once as, for every efficiently checkable problem, is it efficiently solved? Yeah. And I I thought that was a good way to describe yeah, it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean that I mean that's just the standard way to yeah. You know, say what this problem means, right? But uh, for but those. Uh, why does it matter? I guess yeah. Is the question. Okay. Well, yeah. I I think it's you know uh, uh, a strong contender for the most important unsolved problem in math, you know, of this century. Mm-hmm. Uh. Uh, so, uh, uh, so NP, right, stands for non-deterministic polynomial time. As I said, we're not as good as <laughs> naming things as yeah. right? But it's, uh, all the problems were, you know, if I told you the answer, you could check it efficiently. Mm-hmm. What we mean by efficiently in computer science is like by an algorithm that uses a number of steps that scales at most like the size of the problem raised to some fixed power. Okay. Okay, we call that a polynomial time algorithm. And that's kind of our rough and ready. Uh, defi- you know, <laughs> okay. you know, it, it doesn't always correspond in practice to efficient, but it's a it's, it's like ballpark. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's ballpark, yeah, right? Okay. And it's like if, if we can't even answer this, then we're not going to answer the more refined questions either, <laughs> right? So, uh, uh, you know, and P is all the problems that are efficiently solvable, right? Yep. They actually have an algorithm that will find the answer right. in that many steps. So, a good example of an NP problem would be. Factoring, mm-hmm. Right. I give you an enormous number. I ask, like, uh, uh, what are its prime factors? Mm-hmm. Right. That problem t- happens to underlie much of modern cryptography. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, a good example of a problem in P, you know, if I just give you a number and I ask you whether it's prime or not but not to find the factors, then that actually has a fast algorithm. Mm-hmm. It was only proven to be in P uh, 16 years ago, That you know, <laughs> in a big breakthrough, okay? So, you know, it, so that, that's an illustration of how it could be very, very non-obvious to figure out which problems have these efficient algorithms and which don't, right? And so, in particular, you know, like, I think as soon as anyone unders as soon as a layperson understands the P versus NP question, I think most of them would say, well, of course, you know, there's not going to be an efficient way to solve every problem that's efficiently yeah. checkable, right? <laughs> well, why are you even asking that, right? I mean, like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Obviously, it's a lot easier to look at, you know, a jigsaw puzzle that your friend did and say, oh, yeah, good job. Looks <laughs> like you finished it. than to actually, you know, do it yourself, right? Same with a Sudoku puzzle. Same with uh, breaking a cryptographic code. Same with, you know, solving some optimization problem mm-hmm. like uh Uh, optimizing of uh, an airline schedule, right, that may involve solving some, you know, satisfying some enormous number of uh, constraints. You know, or, or as many of them as you can, right? right? They, you know, when they conflict with each other, right? But it's uh, it's not so proven
0: not to be possible. That's
1: right. That's right. N- n- no one has ruled out that a fast such algorithm could exist. You know, essentially, you know, it's very very hard to prove a negative, right? <laughs> you know, occasionally we can do it, but it's uh, you know, it it tends to be much harder, right? And and you know, if something is possible, you just have to show how to do it, yeah. right? But to prove that something is not possible. You have to, in some sense, understand the space of all the possible ways that it could have been done, right? And give some general argument why none of them could work, yeah. right? So sometimes we can do that. It's not like, you know, we, we've made no progress, yeah. right? But we're a long, long way from being able to prove things like P not equal to NP, I right. think. Uh, you know, I like to say that if we were physicists, we would have just declared P not equal to NP to be a law of nature,
2: right? <laughs> we would have
1: just been done with it, right? Yeah, Feynman you know, would said, have declared yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, right. So, you know, well, like like the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. No, you know, you know, we could have given ourselves Nobel prizes for the, <laughs> our discovery of the law. And later, if it turned out that oh, actually, p equals NP, there is a fast way to solve all these problems. Well, then we could just give ourselves more Nobel prizes for the <laughs> laws overthrow, right? But you know, there's one thing you learn in an interdisciplinary subject like quantum computing is you know, like there are different differences in terminology and culture between fields, right? What the physicists call law we call a conjecture right <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's
0: increasingly hard to draw the lines in between the two as well. Yeah, CS, math, physics. Oh
1: yeah, well no, I mean I I make fun of uh, my brothers and sisters in physics all the time, you know, only because I love them, of course. (laughs) But uh, uh, but you know, but in fact, you know, uh, large parts of physics and CS have been coming together uh, in the last decades. Uh, You know, partly uh, uh, statistical physics made this very very deep connection between like spin glasses and condensed matter physics and combinatorial optimization problems right and you can understand what many algorithms are doing using physical analogies hmm. and then of course quantum computing right yeah. was this enormous uh uh intersection where suddenly these fields were just thrust together yeah. and they had to quickly learn each other's terminology and frame of <laughs> reference right and you know and that that's a good part of what i've been doing is just helping to translate and uh you know i give colloquia in physics departments where you know they just want to know like well what are P and NP, right? Yeah. And what are the basics of you know like uh, undergraduate level computer science, yeah. right? But uh what's what's cool is that, you know, like I can um uh talk to string theorists, let's say, right? Yeah. And they know this, you know, like staggering, you know, tower of knowledge that, you know, that I don't know, right. Uh-huh. That I'm only at the, the like lowest foothills of. Right. And yet suddenly they too need to know about computer science. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, they, you know, they have to know, respect you. <laughs> well, well they, they, you know, they want to, you know, we have something to talk about. Right. So we, we, <laughs> yeah. we, did,
0: we did a podcast with uh Leonard Susskind. That's yeah. not out yet. He's
1: um, the perfect example of uh, yeah. someone who has been pushing this intersection, maybe even, you know, more aggressively than I've been. Yeah, you know, possibly. I'm like, I'm a, I, every time I talk to him, I'm like, slow down, Lenny. You know, co- you know, computer science, m- you know, is not quite the future of all of physics. And he's like, it absolutely
2: is. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: we didn't even get that far. Yeah, yeah. Right, uh, but right, right, but I right. do have a question related yeah, to his yeah. work. So yeah,
0: he talks about this holographic principle, right? Right? Um, right. How does that relate to this the firewall paradox? So I I couldn't quite grasp the two together.
1: This is a big discussion. I oh, all right uh, the uh, okay the the holographic principle is this uh, 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 like general phenomenon where often you write down a physical theory in some number of uh, uh, dimensions mm-hmm. like you know involving let's say a three-dimensional space and then it turns out to be dual in some sense to uh, a completely different looking physical theory mm-hmm. which is defined on the boundary of that space right so like in a, even in a different number in one fewer dimensions right and uh, the first theory uh, the one that's in the bulk as they say mm-hmm. right in the interior it involves gravity so it's a quantum theory of gravity or mm-hmm. Uh, can have things like black holes that form and evaporate, Uh, whereas the theory that's on the boundary is a, uh, you know, pretty ordinary quantum field theory, meaning it has no gravity Mm and it's a flat. Space time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, these two theories look totally different, right? And, you know, what do you even mean in saying that they're the same thing? Right, right. It's, like it's literally very, the same it's information. Very, right, it's, yeah. right. It's very confusing. Well, you mean that there's a one to one mapping between states of the first theory and states of the second theory, right? And this mapping is non local, right? Like, like I could have like a little particle here, right? Like inside of the bulk. And yet, you know, on the in the boundary theory that would correspond to some enormous smeared out thing. Right. The the uh, the the mapping between the bulk theory and the boundary theory in recent years, people realize that it is literally an example of one of these quantum error correcting codes that I ta- told you about before. That's the you know same things that one would need in building a quantum computer, mm. right? Mm. It is uh, uh you know uh, the whole point of an error correcting code is that you take like a local you know one bit and you smear it out. Yeah. You represent it with a large number of bits. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, and so 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 this is uh you know and this is also what happens in a hologram, right? Hence the name holographic principle. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, so there's this smeared-out representation of everything that's happening in the interior, you know, which is represented on the boundary, right? And this is, in some sense, like, this is, like, the most... Precise definition that the string theorists are able to give of what they mean by quantum gravity, right? That they say, well, you know, what we really mean by uh, quantum gravity is you define this theory on the boundary, which they more or less know how to do, and then somehow there's this thing in the bulk that's uh, dual to that, <laughs> right? And, you know, and, and like, so, right, so again, you know, the different culture, different standards. In yeah, field, for right? sure. You know, they, they, like, they don't even have like a rigorous independent definition of this bulk theory. Uh, but, um, uh, but what they can do is in various special cases, they can calculate things in the bulk theory, and then they can calculate the same thing in the boundary theory. And in every single case where they can do the calculation in both places, they get the same answer. Okay. So this is what leads them to say. So they're good enough. Yeah. Good enough for them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. How does that relate to the firewall? Uh, right. So, well, so this is, um, so the firewall paradox is this, uh, uh, it's sort of like a modern, uh, refinement of, uh, Stephen Hawking's, you know, original black hole information paradox from the 1970s. It's like right? Hawking radiation. And that, right, idea. right. So, so, so in, well, yeah, so shortly after he discovered Hawking radiation, you know, in 1975, uh, Hawking, you know, wrote a paper that posed, uh, Uh, the information paradox or puzzle of black holes, which is basically just the question, how does information ever get out of a black hole, right? You know, why does it have to get out? Well, if we believe that quantum mechanics uh, describes everything in the universe, you know, uh, quantum mechanics... Um, you know, uh, except possibly when a measurement is made, okay? Yeah. Well, let's leave, you know, if, if, if you believe in except the many- you observe anything. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, if you believe in the many worlds theory, then, then even a measurement is just, you know, is just another ordinary thing where just, you know, you split into multiple, co- you know, uh, uh, uh uh, branches but yeah. uh, let's let's leave that aside right any isolated physical system uh, is supposed to evolve in a completely reversible way mm-hmm. right it may be very hard to reverse in practice you know you scramble it's a lot easier to scramble an egg than to unscramble it right but uh in the view of physics since the 19th century that's merely because you know our universe started in a very special state right <laughs> with a very low entropy right uh, uh, my friend Sean Carroll likes to say that every time you cook an egg, you're doing an experiment in cosmology, right? <laughs> you're proving that the Big Bang was in a special state, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But uh, but, uh, uh, but you know, but in principle, you know, everything is supposed to be reversible. So in particular, if I drop an encyclopedia into a black hole, you know, then the information, what was written on the pages cannot be deleted from the universe, right? It has to still be there. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, well, where does it go? Right, you could say maybe when it hits the singularity, it goes into some you know other bubble universe, you know. And I think people thought about that for a while. But the uh, um, uh, you know a popular point of view uh, nowadays is that uh, uh, ultimately the information does come out. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, it comes out in the Hawking radiation right, which for a black hole that was the mass of our sun, it would take a, a mere 10 to the 67 years for this to happen. <laughs> Maybe, you know, eventually... Got would, time. Yeah, that's right. You know, if yeah. you have a long enough grant, and you could wait. And <laughs> you could see this, right? Yeah. You know, eventually it would come out, you know, of course in a very scrambled form. Just like, you know, if I burn a book... Right. Physics tells us that the information is still there in the smoke and ash. It's not very accessible anymore. (laughs) But, you know, in principle, it's It's still there. there. And so the idea is that a black hole is just another example of this. Okay, but there's a big puzzle because the information, um, uh, uh, you know, if if you were like, you know, uh, floating next to the encyclopedia, you would just see it go right past the event horizon of the black hole go, you know, all the way down into the singularity. And then, you know, it's kind of never, you know, it doesn't seem like it's ever coming out, right? How does it get into the Hawking radiation right. in order to come out, right? And so, uh, you know, this was such a an acute puzzle that it forced people like Lenny Susskind and uh, Gerard at Hooft in the 1990s to this view called black hole complementarity, which basically says that there are, two different ways to look at the same situation, you know, for an observer who's outside the black hole mm-hmm. or for an observer who is, uh, 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 uh jumping into it mm-hmm. with the encyclopedia, right? And the idea is from the point of view of the first observer, uh, the information, you know, the information, uh, if you like, never even makes it past the event horizon, right? It just sort of uh, gets uh, pancaked, right? Out, it's like you know, a fly somehow. hitting a windshield. Yeah, it's flat you know, on the, I mean, yeah. I mean, first of all, just because of relativistic time dilation, you're never going to see anything fall into the black hole, right? It'll just get like slower and slower as it as it nears it, right? You'll never actually see anything go in. And so the idea is, from the outside observer's point of view, you could treat the interior of the black hole as not even existing at all, right? It's or it's just like some weird and different and. Scra- Way to rewrite what is happening on the event horizon
2: mm-hmm. of the black mm-hmm. hole. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is another example of one of these holographic dualities, mm-hmm. right? Where there's two different ways to look at the same physical situation. You know, there's the interior point of view, and then there's the point of view where it's all on the event horizon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then, you know, but then there are all sorts of puzzles about reconciling these two different points of yeah. view, you know, as you could imagine, right? The firewall paradox was, uh, you know, like a particular uh a technical puzzle about how to reconcile these two different points of view. If we had another 20 minutes, I could go yeah. into <laughs> it, but it might, might take too long. But in the meantime, you know, yeah. people actually do, you know, the other thing they do is that they use – this um, bulk boundary correspondence as sort of a laboratory. So they say, you know, we have a space time where, you know, we have a boundary where we can sort of calculate what's going on. And now let's inside of the bulk of that space time, let's form a black hole. Mm -hmm. And now let's try to answer all these, you know, enormous conceptual questions about, you know, what is going on inside (laughs) of a black hole by translating them into questions about what is happening in the boundary theory. Right. Now meaning, you know, the boundary of space time, not the boundary of the black hole. Right. Right. Uh, but you know, but that's proven very difficult because, uh, you know, in some sense, what physics want, what, 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 what the theory wants is to just answer questions about what is observable by some hypothetical observer who is far away from all the action. Yeah. Who can just send in some particles that also all like, you know, hit each other and stuff. And then, you know, some, some other particles come out. <laughs> right? You know, so like, you know, this is like a point of view that physicists like to take a lot of They right? The, you know, all of existence is like a giant particle collider, right? <laughs> you just send some, smash some things into each other. You look at the debris that comes out on the other end. Yeah. Right? But if you're asking what is the experience of someone who jumps into a black hole, then that is inherently not that kind of a question. Right. Right? It's not a question about the observer at infinity. It's a question about, you know, someone who is very much in the action. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like Alice sends Bob yeah, right. into a black hole. Exactly, yeah. and these boundary yeah. Yeah. pictures are just don't seem very good yet at, at addressing that kind of question. So, okay, so yeah. let, let's move on to another <laughs> yeah,
0: sure. unanswered question. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. <laughs> so you got a bunch of uh, AI-related questions from the uh, internet. Yes, and it seems that people want you to opine about AGI. Oh. So, uh, let's go with one of them. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Anag asks, how can we channel AI growth, but not weaponize it? Mm. So in a, in a sense, like how do we, it, it seems like they're assuming AGI happens. Um, What do you, what do you think?
1: I mean, I think that there will be many, uh, social issues that we'll have to deal with with AI or, you know, already are having to deal with even long before we reach the era when AI is like, you know, near the level of human intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, we're obviously going to have to worry about self-driving cars and all the benefits and also the, you know, Disruption and, and issues that those are going to bring, um, you know, uh, AI for, for data mining and all of the implications that it has for privacy or, you know, a, uh, a deep net, you know, denies your uh, loan application, yeah. but then, you know, no, no human can explain why yep. your application was turned down, right? So, I mean, these are things that, you know, I think lots of people are thinking about. And, uh, you know, the good thing is that we, we can try things out in the real world, right? I think, uh, uh, we don't normally think of like ethics and morality as experimental sciences, no. but, you know, but very often, you know, people have moral intuitions about something that, uh, you know, are are, are are really bad until they have been checked by experience. Right. Uh, and so we're going to have to sort of. We, you know and we 'll have the opportunity to refine our ethical intuitions about all these issues by seeing the ways that AI actually gets deployed and you know i i i, I don't think i 'm going to uh shock the world if I say you know I hope that uh we 'll find ways to use it for good and not for evil <laughs> <laughs> but uh but you Thanks. know now i i have um Many friends, uh, including, you know, here in the – especially here in the Bay Area, you know, where I see every time I come to visit here, who are very, very interested in, uh, you know, what happens after that mm-hmm. when AI actually uh, 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 reaches the level of human intelligence or exceeds it. Mm -hmm. Right. And clearly, whenever that happens, then, you know, we are living in a completely different kind of world. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, think of like the the woolly mammoths. Right. Once the hominids, you know, start, you know, making their spears and their, you know, bows and arrows. Right. That, you know, life is not the same anymore. Uh, And so a lot of my uh, friends in this in this community are very interested in the question how can we ensure that once an AI gets created that is sort of at a, you know, uh, uh, or, or beyond human level that it sort of shares our values, mm-hmm. right. That, uh, you know, it doesn't just, you know, say, uh, okay, my goal was to make paper clips. So I'm going to just destroy the whole earth because, yeah. you know, that's more raw material for paper clips, right. That it, it will, uh, uh, say, no, I should, uh, you know, the humans created me, I should revere them as my, you know, as my, uh, 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 great, although slightly dimwitted ancestors, <laughs> and, you know I should let them, you know, s- uh, stay in a nice utopia yeah, or yeah. something. You know, even while I go off and uh, you know prove uh, P is not equal to NP or right. you know, do do whatever interests me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean my my point of view is that if civilization uh survives for long enough, eventually we're going to have to deal with these kinds of questions, right? right? I mean, I see no reason to believe that the human brain which is the product of all these you know weird uh evolutionary pressures you know including like the width of the birth canal mm-hmm. and you know how much food was available in the ancestral environment and all this stuff right there's no reason to believe that we are near the limits of intelligence that are allowed by the laws of physics Mm-mm. right and so eventually sure you know it could be possible to produce beings that are much more intelligent than we are yeah uh and we may have to eventually worry about that. Now, now um uh I have to confess that personally, you know, when I think about like the future of civilization, you know, let's say the next 20 years, the next 50 years, I tend to worry less about super intelligence than I do about super stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I tend to worry about, you know, you know, killing ourselves off or, uh, you know, by catastrophic climate change, by nuclear war or just the world, you know, regressing into, uh, you know, fascism, just giving up on liberal democracy. And of course, we've, you know, seen many distressing signs uh, all over the world that, you know, that there is this kind of backsliding right now. And uh, so I I like to say that, you know, that I hope that, you know, my, 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 my biggest hope is that civilization should only last long enough that, you know, being destroyed by super intelligent robots becomes our biggest right issue. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Let, let, let let that be our worst problem
2: right of course yeah. it, it's yeah, like yeah.
0: this silly mental game where it assumes well, we've learned nothing along the way and it's just like well overnight. I mean
1: I you know look, look I, I'm not I, I wouldn't go that far right I mean I think it's it's good to have some people thinking about these things mm-hmm. right just like you know you know there should be people thinking about how could we prevent a, you know a catastrophic asteroid impact mm-hmm. right or you know how how could we prevent uh uh you know a uh, bioterror right and you know and and they'll probably discover various interesting things along the way, mm-hmm. right? That you know will have implications for the world of today, right? I mean that usually happens when people, you know, uh uh you know let their minds, you know, roam freely over the far yeah. future, right? So I'm I'm happy to have people think about this. Uh I just uh, uh think that uh you know let's let's as as practice for solving the problem of AI alignment. Let's see if we can solve global warming first. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. see how that goes. <laughs> yeah,
1: see how it goes.
0: Yeah, it goes, man. Uh, all right, let's do another Twitter question. Yeah. So, uh, Michael Berg asks: Yeah, is anyone keeping track of the smallest n such uh, that Busy Beaver n mm-hmm. is independent of ZF set theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he mentions. I recall there was some activity after the 2016 article. Uh, mm-hmm. I assume that was on your blog. I oh, guess uh, n- it was. And I'm wondering if 1919 states is still the record.
1: Ah. So um okay so so let me uh, back up and explain what he's talking yeah. about. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. So uh so so the busy beaver numbers are uh well they're one of my my favorite uh sequences of numbers since I was a teenager. Uh they uh, uh uh the the nth busy beaver number you can think of it as the largest finite number of things that could be done by any computer program that is n bits long. Mm-hmm. Okay so You know, we rule out programs that just go into an infinite loop, right? But we say as long as your program has to eventually halt, then what is the most number of things that it could do before halting? Mm -hmm. You know, if this program is, uh, say, n bits long and it's, you know, run on a, a blank input. Okay. So... Uh, uh, you know, of course this could depend on the programming language a bit, but uh, let's just take the original programming language, uh, Turing machines, right? And so then the nth Busy Beaver number is defined as the largest number of steps that can be uh, uh, taken by any Turing machine with n states, you know, uh, as defined by Alan Turing in Mm -hmm. 1936 before uh, it, it halts. And, uh, The amazing thing about this function is that it increases more rapidly than any function that could be uh, calculated by any computer program. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is provable, right? So, uh, you know, it is um, a ridiculously quickly growing function. Uh, so like busy beaver the first four values of the busy beaver function are known, right? Okay. They're like <laughs> one, six, 21 and a uh, hundred and something. The fifth one is already not known, but it's at least 47 million, okay. uh, and then the, the um the the sixth one already you would need like a stack of exponentials to start to express it. Uh so uh you know, so if you're ever in a contest to name the bigger number, you know, and you just say busy beaver of a hundred, if your opponent does not know about computability theory, you will destroy them. <laughs> right? Uh okay, but now another fascinating thing about this busy beaver sequence, uh, besides, you know, the fact that it grows so rapidly. Yeah. Okay, well, so in some sense, you know, it encodes all, you know, uh, uh, in a certain sense, it encodes all of mathematics. For example, you know, if if I wanted to uh, uh, know, uh, you know, is the Riemann hypothesis true, right? You know, well, there's some Turing machine with some number of states that tests the Riemann hypothesis, right, that halts mm-hmm. only if it finds a counterexample to mm-hmm. it. And then if I knew Busy Beaver for that number of states, then I would just have to run that machine for that number of states, see if it halts, that would answer the Riemann hypothesis, right? So, you know, so like sometimes it's no surprise that this function grows uncomputably rapidly, (laughs) right? Because, you know, it has so much, uh, you know, so many secrets of the universe encoded into it, right? Uh, And furthermore, uh, one can prove that sort of uh, uh, um, the... uh, uh, axioms of set theory Mm -hmm. can only determine finitely many values of this function. Okay, so in some sense beyond a certain point, you know, the... um... Uh, standard rules of mathematics cannot even prove what are the values of this function. Mm-hmm. You know, it has some values because, you know, every Turing machine either halts or it doesn't halt. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, in some sense, we could never know them, right? <laughs> so uh, right. so, 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 a few years ago, uh, I had a, a master student uh, at, uh, when I was then at MIT named uh, Adam Yadidia, and I gave him uh, as a thesis project. To try to determine well what you know what is a, a, a concrete bound on the on the number of states where this busy beaver function just goes off the cliff into unknowability, mm-hmm. right? We may not be able to determine exactly where it happens, but you know at least we can say can it does it happen by you know, at most you know ten thousand states or mm-hmm. by at most a hundred thousand states? So what he did is that he designed uh, a Turing machine. Uh, with eight thousand, about eight thousand states uh, that um, does something that's equivalent to just uh, trying out all the possible theorems of set theory one after the other and halting if it ever finds a contradiction. Okay, now what what does that that mean? Well, it means because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, it means that uh, 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 the a uh, set theory can never prove that this machine. Uh, uh, runs forever. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, if set theory is consistent, mm-hmm. then the machine does run forever. Mm-hmm. But if set theory were able to prove that, then set theory would be proving its own consistency. That is a no-no. That's, that's exactly what Gödel's second incompleteness theorem says it can't do without being inconsistent.
0: Yeah, right? I think I got so,
1: it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you it's it's kind of like uh the 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 way to remember it is uh, you know, an, anyone who brags all about themselves probably has nothing to brag about, yeah. right? You know, if <laughs> if your theory right. is bragging about its own consistency, it means it's inconsistent. Yeah. Okay. You know, an, an, an inc- a theory could believe it's inconsistent while being consistent. Gotcha. That's possible, okay. but no, but not the other way. Right? So okay. you know, it can't believe it's consistent without uh so so um uh, so, so he designed an 8,000 state machine. You know, and this was a lot of software engineering that went right? You had to, like, uh, compile down the Turing machine, you know, keep very careful control over the number of states. And so then he and I wrote a paper about this. I put it up on my blog. And then, you know, this, uh, uh, what's cool is that, you know, a lot of hobbyists were able to look at this, say, you know, well, maybe they could improve on it. In particular, there's a guy named Stefan O'Rear. And he got it down to a less than 2,000-state machine. Mm-hmm. And I believe that most recently he's gotten it down to under 800 states. Wow! Uh, uh, in any case, all of his – he hasn't written a paper about it, but all of his code is uh, available on GitHub. If anyone wants to look at it, even try to improve over what he did. Mm-hmm. you know, I suspect that there may even be a machine with 10 states that would already exceed the ability of set theory to know what it does.
0: Why do you suspect that?
1: Well, I don't, know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, already with right. five states, there are machines that you know whose behavior seems to hinge on some weird number theory, okay. and no one has yet understood them, right? And um, you know, and, and we know how rapidly this Busy Beaver function yeah. grows. I mean, the truth is that we don't know, yeah. right? Uh, but you know, it's somewhere between five and eight hundred or so. This <laughs> okay. thing goes off the cliff.
0: Cool. Yeah. Uh, I actually do have a question about your blog. So, yeah. from what I can tell, you're basically inactive on social media
1: yeah well i i I do not have a twitter account that's not an accident
2: okay (laughs) yeah that's
0: what i figured uh Despite that, or in yeah. spite of that, yeah. you've been blogging for 10, 15 years?
1: Since since 2005. Okay. And I, I guessed blogged on some other blogs before that. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I, uh, blogs used to be considered social media. That's true. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like I, I feel like a dinosaur, right? Like, back in my day, we just had blogs, <laughs> and we really liked it, you know? Uh, I mean, I feel like so, so my... Uh, uh, My my friend Sarah Constantine had a post – I I thought a very insightful uh, post about this recently where she was making the point that uh, uh, blogs are, I think, very much in keeping with the sort of original promise of the internet, the original idea that it was going to be a space where people would discuss things, (laughs) right, where they could spell out an argument, you know – by composing some paragraphs of text, <laughs> right, that would set out what they think and why, you know, put in. The- put their take responsibility for what they said, put yeah. their name to it. Other people would then respond to it, give counter arguments. It would all stay there. You could search for it, you could find it, you could link to it. Right, it's it's very much a continuation of, you know, the culture of say Usenet yeah. in the, you know, 80s and 90s, right? Uh and since then we seem to have moved away from that toward a model of communication on the internet that's a lot more like what offline communication used to be right <laughs> yep, yep. i mean i've described Twitter as sort of the world's biggest high school right it okay. is a i mean no you know which which you know doesn't mean it's all bad but right? in fact i have wonderful friends who you know use twitter for you know to do you know very you know yeah. worthy and, and great things i mean you know i like to tell them that they're they're sort of like they bear the same relationship to twitter as like the ten righteous men born of sodom and gomorrah right <laughs> but uh uh it, uh you know unfortunately it is not a medium that i think is designed For spelling out an argument, right? Or uh, uh, for sort of explaining carefully where you're coming from. Uh, It is almost like designed for ganging up on people for forming these kind of outrage mobs, which indeed we see that, you know, it is susceptible to these, you know, repeated sort of outrage explosions. Right. And, you know, and and I, I'm not blaming one political side, right? I think, you know, there's, uh, we can find plenty of examples on both ends of the political spectrum yeah. of uh, Twitter kind of being used for what I think it was really nasty purposes. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, Tumblr and uh, Instagram. I mean, you know, they, you know, it's not always nastiness, right? But they're just sort of, you know, they're designed for kind of, uh, you know, sharing a photo. People click like on it, yeah. right? It's uh, a lot of kind of social signaling. It's a lot of building up one's popularity, one's presence, right? And not sort of discourse. Not they're not really designed for you know, carefully clarifying, well, what is it that we really disagree about, yeah. right? Where are we coming from? And that is really what interests me, right? Mm-hmm. That is what, you know, I don't always succeed, but that's that's that that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that that's kind of what I try to do on my blog, right? Yeah. I think the problem comes when, you know, we try to have that kind of conversation on the blog, like a really careful conversation where anyone is welcome to contribute, but, you know, they have to play by the ground rules, right? Of sort of, uh, you know, have some empathy, understand where other people are coming from, right? And then if people come into that, from the culture of outrage miles where they just say, let's just look for the most inflammatory sentence ripped out of context yeah. that we can just put all over Twitter to say, you know, look at these blithering idiots, right? <laughs> then, you know, it, it really it becomes scary and it becomes uh, much harder to have that kind of discourse where you're uh, really trying to understand the other side. So uh, have, have you yeah. been...
0: Yeah, because you, you've been the victim of this before, right? You could like say pe- so. Yeah, or you know, for better. <laughs> I mean, but
1: you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, a lot of people who try to do this have for also sure. been. um, yeah. you know, in fact, a lot of people have had it much worse than I have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it has
0: that. Like, were you on Twitter at one point? And no, these, okay.
1: No, it was just it would just never really tempted me. Interesting. I mean, you know, if I have something to say, I. uh you know, I mean, I mean, sometimes I just put like little updates on the ends of my blog posts that are kind of like tweets, but, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a favorite post?
1: Oh, um, so, uh, uh, my, uh, uh, my, I had these posts, uh, critiquing information. Uh, so sorry, uh, integrated information theory, Okay. which is a the proposed theory of consciousness by, uh, people uh, like Giulio Tononi and you know exp- I, w- I was explaining why I don't think this theory of consciousness works why <laughs> okay. it solves the problem it's supposed to solve but uh, what was great about this post is that you know the uh, uh, all the experts you know Tononi himself got involved in the discussion uh, David Chalmers the uh, uh, philosopher of consciousness cool. got involved in the comment section and so we kind of had this you know kind of plato's academy thing going yeah. right you know like uh um you know just in, in my blog comment section right? i feel like we were actually able to make progress on wow. this major issue right uh, uh uh you know that that's not all right i mean sometimes i write a post that just you know some stupid joke or procrastination right. but, <laughs> uh, you know but sometimes you know when i uh, uh you know, have something that I want to get out there. It's nice to have a forum. Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you, uh, suggested this question, so I might as well ask you, Mm -hmm. uh, advice for young people. So you, uh, kind of are all across the world, like, you know, you're potentially licensing ideas to companies, but you're within academia Mm -hmm. and you're, you're also, you know, kind of a CS science communicator. So you're, you're across Mm -hmm. many realms. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your advice for nerds in general or, uh, yeah, people who want careers in science?
1: Uh, well, uh, first of all, you know, if you are um, uh, currently in high school or something, yeah. you know, uh, well, you know, I, uh, uh, I hope you're having a good experience. <laughs> uh, if you are, that's awesome. And, you know, take advantage of it. If you're not... Uh, You know, realize that things will get better. Uh, You know, so uh, one of, you know, because this is a Y Combinator podcast, I should m- mention that one of the most influential essays that I ever read was uh, Paul Graham's uh, Why Nerds Are Unpopular. Oh, yeah. Uh, it has, you know, an enormous amount of insight, I think. That's the beginning and, of
0: Hackers and Painters. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, So, you know, so, so uh, buy his book. But if you don't want to buy it, he's also got it on his web page. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh... uh... Um, and and the and the basic uh, argument that he develops there is that uh, you know we you know a teenagerhood is sort of a creation of the modern world, mm-hmm. right? It used to be that you know once people would pass through puberty, right? Well, you know either they would go off and get married, you know, right? That or they would apprentice themselves to some craftsman, or you know maybe they'd be working in the fields <laughs> or whatever, right? But you know, but but they in any case they would not be in this sort of environment of high school, which is sort of an artificial environment that we've created uh, because we don't know what else to do Mm -hmm. with these people, right? And, you know, maybe there's some teaching of them that that goes on, although if you look at how much knowledge the average high school graduate possesses, you know, it can't have been that much. No, retaining Uh, not so much. That's right. That's right. Uh, So, but but, but what what you do get a lot of is sort of popularity contests that are you know, can be sort of, you know, based on nothing. Right. And yet if you want to do well in it, then you sort of have to devote almost all of your time to this. Right. And so this, that's the core of the, uh, right. right. So, so a nerd, you know, in, in his telling is someone who is in that environment, but who's already thinking about the issues that matter in the wider world. Yeah. And he says Um,
0: basically like they care more about being smart than being popular.
1: Yeah. So, um, um, you know and and he says like like it, it's very hard to accept that that is your priority right because it seems <laughs> like you know you would give anything right i mean uh you know you would even accept like a lowering of thirty i q points or something just yeah. to not be in the situation that you're in right but uh except if someone actually gave you that choice, would you actually take it right so uh uh but but realize that um uh you know, there, there is a wider world of, you know, people who are going to appreciate, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of things that really matter. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, you can try to uh, get get to that world sooner, depending mm-hmm. on your circumstances. So, you know, so I actually left high school early. I got a uh, GED from New York State when I uh, when I was 15. And I really? went well, to a place called Clarkson School in upstate New York. Which is a uh, program for high school students who can uh, take courses at Clarkson University mm-hmm. and then, you know, apply to college from there. Uh, you know, uh, almost every college rejected me. I mean, this was kind of a bizarre trajectory. But uh, Cornell was nice enough to accept me. How so old were you? I, oh, I was sixteen. You were I sixteen when there. you started at Cornell. Yeah, yeah. And wow. then, and then I, since I already had one year, then I spent three years at Cornell. Okay. And then, uh, and then, and then I went to Berkeley for grad school. Yeah. Uh, so you know, so I was lucky to be able to leave it a little bit earlier. You know, and and you know, my parents, uh, you know, were supported me i mean once it became clear that this was what i wanted to do yeah right they uh you know they warned me well look you know this is going to make your social life like really really difficult which turned out to be a hundred percent (laughs) true uh but you know the i remember telling them at the time look you know my Mm -hmm. social life already stinks so you know you know it's all uh i mean you know uh, you know at least i could have uh 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 mm-hmm. you know, I mean I, I mean I was lucky to have some very very good you know, a few very, very good friends in high school, some of whom are still my my wonderful friends, right? But uh uh like it was it was only after you know I had been a postdoc for a while that I started finally figuring out uh how to drive a car, uh how to ask someone on a date. Oh, <laughs> man. So so I sort of did things in a weird order. So when right? you, when but, you uh,
0: Yeah, when you wrote yeah. about you've written about depression a little bit in yeah, your book. Yeah. So was that during this period or was that? Yeah, after? it was pretty okay.
1: much during this period. But, you know, but even starting before I had skipped any grades. So, okay. so, right. So that's the thing. I felt like I was already in such a, uh, uh, a, um, constricted environment, right? That like at least I could be learning some, you know, uh, uh CS and math, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at least I could, uh, uh, be in an environment that was, uh, you know, uh, where, where people cared about the intellectual things that I cared about. Right. But uh, but but realize, you know, you know, once you get into that environment, right, you are not the only one. Right. <laughs> Eventually, you know, you will be able to, uh, you know, a great thing about the modern world is that people can sort themselves. Right. And you can find a group of friends who will care about the things that you care about.
0: Yeah. So in other words, you know, put yourself out there yeah. and try things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Cool. Um, all right, Scott. Well, thank you mm-hmm. so much for coming in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So thank you.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.